You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. much. Um, it's been great, hasn't it, hearing what God has been doing amongst us this morning um, over the last few years. Um, that really did me a lot of good. And just to add my welcome, if you are joining us for the first time, maybe you've just turned up to church and this isn't usually your thing, um, we'd love to yeah, support you, welcome you, make you feel at home. And yeah, maybe you're visiting as a student as well. And we'd love to serve you on your journey around finding church in York. But we've been in a series looking at the Psalms of Ascent, so we're continuing that series on this morning. And the Psalms of Ascent are a collection of 15 psalms sung as the Israelites have gathered together. And as we've called it here, they're on their way up to this journey together up to Jerusalem, and they're going to worship God at the temple, and this happens three times a year. And I just love the fact that we get this insight into this kind of long journey. I'm really glad that you don't get insights into my long journeys, but it it really is this sense of, you know, forget the James Corden karaoke carpool. This is, no, this is not me. (laughs) Sorry about that. This is the ultimate soundtrack of like Christian pilgrimage, yeah? We hear about the highs, we hear about the lows, we hear about everything in between of what it takes to be the people of God, to set our sights on God, going to meet with him. And today we're going to be landing in Psalm 131. This is a really beautiful psalm. It's just three verses long, so it's a bit of a treat to prepare for a sermon on. Um, But one of the commentators describes this psalm as the antidote to an achy soul. I don't know what your feeling is about the word soul and what that conjures up for you. Is it this kind of ghost-like thing that floats around inside your body that one day when you die goes off somewhere else? Or is it more like this, the very kind of depth of your inner being, your passions, your desires, your emotions, your heart, your mind? I'd like to suggest that's kind of where we're going to land this today. But I wonder, before we kick off, what's going on in the very inner depths of your being right now? We don't often like to take a moment to kind of go there and look there. But we live in a world that literally does wanna contend for our souls, grappling for our affection, our attention, wrestling for answers, for peace, for contentment. And there is this kind of constant struggle often going on. But this morning, as we dwell in Psalm 131, I really hope that we're gonna find a moment with God of peace, of rest, of quiet and even some relief today. So I wanna just pray for us before we read the scripture. Yeah, Father, we say we need you today. We need you to still our hearts, our souls before you. We thank you for how powerful your word is, how it does such good to us. And we really ask Holy Spirit that you would do good to us this morning. You would shape us 
as your people. You'd give us ears to hear what it is that you want to do in us today. Amen. So let's read the scripture. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. So when I first read this psalm, probably a few years back, my reading of it was, this is pretty easy, yeah? This is beautiful. There's this beautiful picture of contentment. There's this image of this weaned child sitting peacefully, contented with its mother. There's rest, there's joy, there's delight, all in this one moment. And my easy interpretation is simply, yeah, this is how God wants me to be with him. I get it. Okay, God, I'm there. Let's do this. I'll come and sit on your lap. I will come and be quiet, and I will trust you when I find life difficult. But having gone on the journey of parenthood, and particularly weaning children onto solid food, I've grappled with this imagery, and I've had to read this psalm again in a new kind of way. The reality for me was that the weaning process for children um, was fun at times, but largely a little bit chaotic, a little bit stressful, um, a bit messy, and it did require a few standoffs with my children. Um, Here is Nia, she's now seven-year-old. I do have permission to share this photo of her. Um, Yeah, this was first go at sweet potato and not a fan, I think it's quite clear to see. But the scholars have actually also grappled with this imagery of weaning. You know, there's a bit of debate about what this picture infers. Is this actually, some have suggested, is this like a newborn baby who has kind of just been feeding and nursing with their mum and they're just safely sort of resting and satisfied and falling asleep after a long feed? Is this the kind of image? Most commentators have actually landed on a slightly different interpretation. So it is likely uh, that children were weaned, as this psalm was put together, around about the age of three. And this is a picture of an older child who is eating solid food, um, who's on a regular rhythm, potentially, of meals. This child is one that has learnt now to wait for their sustenance. They're not likely to be a sort of demanding newborn who is wailing for food and waking up with an empty stomach. But this image in this psalm is sort of painting for us a beautiful sort of picture of a life on offer to us with Jesus. You know, just as a child has learned that their meals are coming, that they're provided for, their needs will be met. It's the same thing here. Life with Jesus is marked with rhythm, rest, contentment, knowing that everything is in hand. He knows what we need. He cares for us. Our souls are at rest, and he will do what he has promised. So there's the sense of peace and contentment in that kind of way. But how do we still our souls 
before him like this wean child. So I don't know if you're like me, uh, you might not be, but my soul is loud, okay? My internal struggle is very, very noisy. And this ranges from a whole layer of things, whether it's sin in my life that I'm struggling to deal with, maybe it's demands from others, maybe it's unmet needs that I'm looking to be met, maybe it's the continual notion of needing to sort of better myself or better others around me. I don't know what it is for you, but the clues actually in this passage of stilling and quietening our souls is actually at the kind of start of the psalm and at the end of the psalm, wrapped around this image. So we're just going to look again at this. So the psalm starts, you can see, with Lord on the first line. And towards the end, it also wraps up with the Lord. And the word for the Lord in Hebrew is Yahweh. You might have heard of that. Yahweh is the name of God. It draws on this sort of imagery of God who is known to his chosen people, who has redeemed, who has provided for, and has powerfully acted on behalf of his people. So I don't think it's a mistake that the Lord kind of features in this sort of way in this psalm. So let's just dig into the first verse. My heart is not proud, O Lord. The psalmist is saying, you know, I don't have a sense of self-importance, of grandeur. I don't hold myself up in high esteem. My eyes are not haughty. A little bit of a strange expression for us. Haughty eyes is actually something the Bible talks about a fair bit in some translations, and it's on this dreaded list in Proverbs, which you may have come across, Proverbs 6, verse 17, and it says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, and number one is haughty eyes. So haughty eyes is just that kind of thing that you probably imagine, the kind of looking down on people, being pretty dismissive, mocking, taking almost like the higher ground. In a nutshell, again, it's pride. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. There's a sense of kind of boundaries here in this psalm. The psalmist sort of knows their limits. They don't think they can do anything. They don't live in this sort of permanent, sort of overreach, overstretch, ambition. The psalmist is sort of defying the terms of our world, of greed, of pride, ambition, coveting, temptation for more. You know, the very thing that threw Adam and Eve out of the garden. They wanted more, anti-contentment, a pushing of this sort of well-ordered, God-ordained boundaries. You know, our society just sort of feeds us with discontentment. Whatever it is that we're clicking on or sort of scrolling on, we find it kind of comes back again and again and again. So we're just being fueled all the time with our sense of discontentment. But there's something just so beautiful about even just this one verse. The psalmist is saying, look, God, I'm going to gladly accept the terms that you've set. Your ways, 
your ordering, your boundaries. And there's this distinction between sort of man and God. We are not God. God is other. There's like a quiet, glad acceptance of the terms that God gives. I love sort of picturing this wean child, three-year-old. I've got one of those at the moment, toddling around. And there's this sort of trusted, learnt relationship that is now happening. So my question then goes to, you know, is this psalm therefore asking us to empty ourselves of all great matters altogether? Are we going to need to quit our jobs if we're in like science or AI or something like that? Are we not allowed to do any grappling? Are we not allowed to be deep thinkers? Are we just here to, yeah, resignation become sort of slightly wet, doormat Christians with no strength or resolve or character, no tussling with God, you know, no kind of sense of something to set our sights on. And yeah, I didn't know you can actually get a personalized Christian doormat. I don't think that is what God wants, actually. No, not necessarily. Not the doormat. Um, I think there's like a bigger theological point at stake here. You know, every part of a believer's lives are lived well when they are lived on the right terms with their maker. Let me try and sort of unpack this for you. You know, God loved us and we are the loved ones. He chose us. We are his chosen people. He made and fashioned and created, and we are now the ones being made into likeness through him. He revealed, and we now understand. He commanded, we respond. He sent his spirit, and now we're the ones filled with all the fullness and measure of him, and he rules and reigns, and we get to participate in his ruling and reigning, and he intercedes for us, and our prayers start to get caught up in his. Do you see the ordering of what is going on here. We've talked about following Jesus on pilgrimage and this kind of long obedience in the same direction. It's about allowing him to set the terms, responding to him and his nature. You know, these are very, very, very well established right from the get-go of creation, these terms. We are to accept what God has revealed to us in this moment. We're to thank him for the peace he gives to us, even when we don't understand. We're to find healing in him, even in the tough stuff. We won't always find the answers. You know, we're not to strut around demanding that we are to be treated as the center of our families, workplaces, friendships, we're to humbly submit and to serve with the grace that God has given to us. We're not to be prideful, ambitious, boastful, endlessly seeking to kind of climb that ladder of progression. Our souls are not to clamor for attention. They are calmed and quieted. And you know, there's such a glad and happy release because we've experienced and we've understood his grandeur, yeah, his altogether set apartness. 
We know the ways by which he works. There's a trust. There's a sense of safety as we know that he will meet our needs and he will always orchestrate our provision. You know, my experience in life is that, so far, (laughs) discontentment often moves around to different places and different things in different seasons. Um, Sometimes it might be the job, sometimes it might be family, sometimes it might be a relationship that's difficult, there's longings that aren't being met, maybe it's money, maybe it's the house, whatever it is, we sort of just journey on this carousel of discontentment. But on what basis can we find contentment in him, particularly when there's adversity, yeah? And when things feel like they're going to pot. Maybe you feel like your life right now is very far from this well-ordered world that God is presiding over. Can I encourage you to cling to the hope and conviction that God's intention for his creation will triumph, to wait in confidence, knowing that God's purposes for his world are resilient. One day he will make all things new and there will be peace, there will be rest, there will be order, there will be perfection. So trust him and wait for him to calm your soul. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning and Maybe you think, actually, this is really arrogant of God, really arrogant that he gets to set the terms and he gets to call the shots. You know, how can I possibly trust him when I look at the world? It's a mess. I don't see order. You might have your own views of how the world might need to be ordered instead. But the reality is, is that the world is where it is right now because there is a distortion of this ordering. Creation has, to a certain extent, decided its own terms. There comes a point, you know, with all of our grappling, our tussling, where we just can't work it out and we have to submit. We have to recognize that we've got no claim on the rival God who spoke this into being. We have to gladly accept the terms he has set. So I just want you to take a moment right now, you and God, just to recognize, yeah, what God is maybe speaking to you about. How do you need to still your soul before him in light of that first verse? I'm just going to read a couple of scriptures that depict who this God is as you are with God. Isaiah 40 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Deuteronomy 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do the words of this law. And Romans says, oh, the depths, the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable 
are his ways. And then we go on to verse 2. This imagery. I've stilled and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. One of the first things I noticed about this psalm when I was actually preparing it was I was kind of expecting God to do this bit, like God has stilled and quieted my soul. It says I, I have stilled and quieted my soul. The activity is on us here. This requires an active participation from us to enter into this beautiful, non-anxious, non-demanding, trusted relationship with God. I just want you for a moment to imagine almost like the spectrum of life. So we come into the world on one end, we are a newborn baby, and we have an utter dependency and need for survival from others. Yeah, we're just clinging on to whoever's going to feed us, change our nappies, get us to sleep, etc. Just utter dependency. And then as kind of life moves on, and particularly in our culture, I would say, our culture advocates that actually on the other end of the spectrum, that real maturity is to be free of dependence is to actually just be free of others and needs of others. But the psalm and this picture here almost opposes both ends of those spectrums. And in fact, both ends of those are very anxiety-driven, both a need for someone to help me and a need to not have any needs, yeah? Instead, we discover this image of a gentle, trusted mother where this wean child is not likely to be equal to or independent of, is not overly demanding of, but is content. And Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar, he says this about this picture, that Christian faith is not neurotic dependency, but childlike trust. Voluntarily, we are to come to him in love, in faith, to trust, willing to be led, to be taught, to be blessed, yeah? You know, the weaning process is a journey, as I've already picked up on, and like lots of things in parenthood, you go in kind of thinking, how hard is it to get a child to eat? And then you come out the other side thinking, oh, that was really hard work with another big sort of dose of parenting humility. There's many of those stages. But, you know, nobody tells you how long the meal times are going to take. Nobody tells you how you're going to spend the rest of your next few years of evenings just clearing up. How, you know, everyone has this opinion as well on which book you need to follow, baby-led or um, purees, Annabelle Carmel, Joe Wicks, whatever it is. And, and then nobody tells you that the poos also change, but we're not going to land there for too long. But the reality is that weaning is messy, yeah? It's loud, it's noisy, it's time-consuming, it takes patience, it takes persistence. It requires us to grow, to mature, to break some old habits, to end some struggles, to submit when it's not easy, 
to come to God despite our emotions and how we feel about things, to release things, to journey in prayer, to learn how to position ourselves rightfully with Yahweh. You know, maybe even just as you're hearing this this morning, there may be some decisive things that you need to do today to still your soul before the Lord. It's not easy to quieten ourselves before the Lord, but it is absolutely necessary for a contemplative, mature, worshipful life in God. You know, we can demand things, we can paddy with him, we can, yeah, just bang on his door asking to help, but we're free to come and enjoy him for who he is, yeah? To dwell, to commune, to know him, to know the glorious depths of trust and delight in him. He loves us, yeah? He loves us, brothers and sisters. He's for us. He wants to be with us. He wants to delight in us, in our presence, and we in his. The psalm then goes on to conclude with this in the final verse. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Interestingly, obviously, this was a psalm that was sung on the way up to Jerusalem. And this is the first time that we hear the psalm addressing Israel. These are the people of God. Remember, um, the Israelites would have known their history. They'd have known of all the stories in the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible. They'd know the story of the Exodus. They'd know the story of God appearing to Moses on Mount Sinai. They'd know the wandering in the wilderness and how God provided for them and their needs of their ancestors. You know, as they're singing, imagine them singing this, oh Israel, put your hope in the Lord, collectively. There's this kind of sense that they're refreshing their minds and their memories of the merciful acts of God, of what he has done. They're reminding themselves of his covenant, the promise he's made between himself and his people. To put your hope in the Lord now and forevermore, it's a nice way to end a psalm. But it's not just an ending that psalmist has chosen because they don't know what else to say. You know, a bit like the end of a phone call. Have you ever done that when it gets so awkward and it's like, oh, see you later, yeah, have a good week. Yeah, you too, all right, okay. And eventually you get to the, bye. It's not like that. This is not what the psalmist has done here. Here's some nice, this is a nice way to land. You know, this conclusion is an active recalling of God's promises, of his hope, of his provision, and it actually has some inferences from a passage in Numbers 11, which is when, God, when Moses and God are almost like having a bit of a conversation. They're contending with the issues. There's been much wandering in the wilderness. The Israelites, they've got fed up. They're on this thing called manna. This is the only thing they have to eat. And they're desperate. They're complaining. They're grumbling. They want some more meat in their diet. And then Moses says this. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? 
Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised, an oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. Can you see the contrast here with the psalm that we've just read? Here we have a people demanding, grumbling, dissatisfied, and hungry. We all know what that feels like. And then on the other end, we have this wean child enjoying their mother's company. The contrast of sort of Moses' sheer inadequacy to still, to quieten, to carry the people, and then almost like this sense of the capable, steady hands of Yahweh. You know, Moses couldn't cope, and this is Moses that we're talking about, yeah? Moses, one of the heroes of faith, appointed by God, who led an entire nation out of Pharaoh's Egypt. What it must have taken to be in his shoes. But here, Moses is saying, God, this is just too much for me. I can't do this. I wonder if at moments we too are relying on others we greatly admire, we greatly esteem, to carry us, to wean us, to save us. God uses people in our lives for sure, definitely. But don't place your dependency on a leader, on a spouse, on a friend, a son, a daughter. It will weigh too heavy. Yeah, it's too much. The psalmist is now answering to the narrative of this that has been. The pilgrims are singing of a learnt reality, of quiet trust. They know this story. They know what has gone before them. They know what it takes to submit to the trustworthy will of Yahweh. And the reality is that these pilgrims are still waiting, enduring for the long haul, exile, captivity, war. They're waiting for the one who would ultimately carry them through and vindicate them. Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. You know, the imagery in this psalm can't help but actually point us towards Jesus. In him, we find the one who has showed us what it is to be still in his Father's presence, to grow in deep maturity and trust in his provision. Despite the expectations and the needs of others, we see so many times that Jesus is sleeping in the boat in the storm, non-fearful, non-anxious, He's taking time, you know, as he's being dragged off to his execution to heal the ear of the servant. I wouldn't be doing that. (laughs) He's arriving four days late when his best friend Lazarus has died and people are in uproar and wailing, where have you been? There's this beautiful thing, yeah, through Jesus' death and resurrection, We now see Jesus seated before the Father, perfectly satisfied, delighting in his Father's presence forevermore. He is like the weaned son. 
You know, the resolution that the world has been crying out for and still is crying out for has been accomplished through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection. All that is on offer to Jesus right now as he is seated before the Father is on offer to us. Trust, shalom, peace, wholeness, joy, delight, worship. You know how we would love more resolution, yeah, in this life, more answers, more clarity, yeah, more insight, more progress. You know, God asks us to cease with anxiety and with restlessness of state of mind and submit to the trustworthy will of Yahweh. Jesus spoke these words as he preached. Um, Often you see this in the bit where it says that text, like, do not worry. And this is from the message. He says this. What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all of your everyday human concerns will be met. You know, the conclusion will always in life be of a God who can be waited upon to act. Psalm 37 verse 7 says this, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. You know, the hopeful heart is one that has learned to wait and to yield. You know, life is not a task to be achieved at and succeeded in. It is a gift. It is guaranteed and orchestrated only by God and his beautiful creative order. You know, in him is our joy, our certainty, our peace, our contentment, our satisfaction, despite all of the incongruities that we find in life. So we are going to just land um, by dwelling and stilling and quietening our soul. Gaz, if you want to come out with the band, um, I'm just going to pray and then we're going to take a moment. This is not really a song to join in with. This is just a moment again to do as the psalmist has encouraged us to still yourself before the Lord. Yeah, God, how we long to grow in maturity. How we long to cease with all of the anxiety of life discontentment that bubbles up oh god we need your help holy spirit we need you lord we thank you you've got a beautiful thing on offer for us we get to join in with your relationship with the father and the son the spirit together we want to commune with you we want to enter in fully into everything that you have for us in your presence So yeah, do good to us this morning as we take those steps towards you. Thank you that you meet us, you love us, you envelop us, your grace for us. Amen.